Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm the president here, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Dr. Tommy Keene, Dr. Peter Lee, Dr. Grace Sutanto, and Dr. Paul Jean. And we are now embarking on what is our second conversation, the second part of our conversation about the book of Psalms as we're going through this series of reading guides to books in the Bible. And so, gentlemen, last time we talked a good bit about poetry or verse and, and what that is, how it works in the ancient world, how it works in the Bible. And I found that to be a fascinating conversation, but we must move on to the book of Psalms itself. And talk a little bit about what this book is. It's, it's obviously an anthology. It has different authors. It has different genre. We can talk about that a bit here as well. But it's, it's one of those books of the Bible, like Proverbs, perhaps like the 12 Minor Prophets, if, if you read them all as one scroll, where you have one literary work that is comprised explicitly of many different authors. That's actually the assumption of the book, and that is many different authors contributing. It's a, it's a kind of polyphony, to use that language, of voices speaking to us about something. And what we want to talk about today is what that something is. So let me start, Dr. Lee, with, with you, my, my Old Testament colleague. Tell us, what is this anthology of Psalms about? What a great question, uh, Dr. Red. Uh, you know, there are different theories have been proposed, uh, you know, in many ways. Um, uh, someone like uh, Gerald Wilson, who recently passed away, well, not recently, but uh, but passed away at an uh, unfortunate That's young right. age when he was doing a lot of Psalm scholarship. Uh, you know, in his dying day, he proposed the idea that the Psalms are about wisdom. Hmm. And that you can actually see a wisdom substructure in the way that the Psalms are organized. It starts with Psalm 1, that he considered as a wisdom psalm. Um, psalm 73, is, he, he suggested, is strategically located. That's a, you know, that deals with that perennial question about wisdom. Um, and, uh, and so that's one suggestion that, that's been held. I, I do think that's a minority view. Mm-hmm. The majority, I think, of, uh, of scholars in the Psalms really sees the Psalms as being very clearly messianic. It is a celebration um, of the messianic uh, son of David, uh, and that the Psalms, uh, to a certain degree, um, are either uh, the voice of the messianic king or a praise unto the upcoming messianic king, uh, and that there, in fact, at times, is con- uh, the Psalms are looked at as almost prophetic, uh, anticipatory uh, of the coming messianic king mm-hmm. uh, that uh, that Israel is expecting uh, post-exile even to a certain extent. That's great. And that's raises this kind of broader question of to what extent should we think of these many different voices speaking to one thing? How, how do we develop uh, a sense of the uniformity of the Psalter? What, what, what kind of, you know, what, what do we have to propose in terms of how these how this is put together to back up that that claim that this is all speaking to kind of one major theme or one major issue. Yeah, one, well one suggestion has been the the order of the psalms we have 150 psalms. Um, some of it were originally one poem that were divided into two, so mm-hmm. we have now a total of 150. So, you know, the Septuagint I think uh, numbers it differently. Yeah. So at one point and that's something always to be cautious when we 
compare this with the old Greek translations, the numbering might be off. So Psalm 95 might be in the Greek Psalm 94, yeah. uh, things like that. But and that's actually um, it- interestingly, I remember there's a point where Psalm two is referenced in, I believe it's in Acts and early manuscripts of that Acts passage call it Psalm one. Right, I think. And, right. and it's talking about the fact that Psalm 1 and 2 read very well together as one psalm, and actually in some canonical orders they show up as, as one psalm. And, and that really is sort of the question that's related to this uh, messianic theme in, in the book of Psalms, that um, you can see the messianic themes in the way that the psalms are ordered. So, for example, uh, Psalm 1 and 2 are—and again, this will be debated, but I think generally people would consider that Psalm 1 and 2 are strategically located in the opening of the psalm, uh, where Psalm 1, you know, Tremper Longman once said, and and I know he was trying to cite someone, and I don't recall who it was, uh, said Psalm 1 is sort of like this gateway protector into the Book of Psalms, and that the Book of Psalms is sort of looked at as this holy of holies, literary holy of holies, where only the righteous can enter in. And if you think about this, the, theme, the themes of Psalm 1, that talks about the blessed man who um, is obedient to the word of God. The the wicked man is the one who's perishing. It's almost mm-hmm. uh, already preparing that theme. Only the righteous can really move on into the psalm and, this, and thus be blessed. If you're wicked, what you're going to find here is just your own condemnation and, and the wrath of God. So it really is kind of uh, ingenious, I always thought, how, you know, that if there's truth to that, that that's sort of setting it up. The next psalm, Psalm 2, is the introduction to the uh, Messianic son of David. Um, and the and Psalm 2, as you know, has been hailed very commonly as sort of a uh, uh, installation psalm, a, 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 a psalm that was celebrated in the installing of, uh, of Davidic kings. So if Psalm 1 is the righteous man that only can he can enter, Psalm 2 is sort of identifying that righteous man as the son of David. And thus introducing you to the major theme of the Book of Psalms. Now, uh, at that point, there's a lot of debate if the rest of the Psalms are in actual strategic order. Is Psalm 3 located there strategically, 4, 5, and so forth? And the majority of, of scholars do see some type of a canonical consciousness mm-hmm. in the order of the Psalms. And that's relevant to, uh, uh, to exegetical matters, if you think about it, or even preaching matters, because... You know, we would preach like Matthew 6 in the context of 5 and 7. So if Psalm uh, 7, if there's an order, then you have to preach Psalm 7 in the context of 6 and 8 and, and so forth. And so it is relevant, and, and, and I guess I'm of a, the minority school that wants to see an order. Uh, you kind of get the sense of a consciousness and order, but... Uh, it it really is kind of tricky to actually see in order, but um, uh, but but that is the big you know sixty four thousand dollar question that they have been arguing and dis- debating for the last like fifty years in psalm scholarship. Everything else has just gone uh, in the wasteland. This is the question that they are all answering or trying to work through, uh, and and the direction, the flow that they see in the Book of Psalms is messianic. It's heading towards the praise mm-hmm. of the messianic king, and they see the ordering kind of reinforcing that. So, uh, although I'm skeptical uh, or uncertain, perhaps is a better way of saying it, about the about a rational order, it, it's really unavoidable to see the messianic theme still, nonetheless. So, regardless of what your thoughts are on the order of the Psalms, 
the theme of that uh, that son of David is uh, is is everywhere in the Psalms, and mm-hmm. so definitely when you are studying or preaching or working through the Psalms in some extent, that definitely is a theme that you want to watch out and look for. That's maybe, maybe it's the inherent insecurity of Old Testament professors, because I feel like my view is the, is the minority view, which is a little bit different. But I mean, I, the, the reason why for our listeners this is really important is because when we're talking about a text being meaningful or having um, you know, uh, authority in your life, we, we go back and we want to say, well, it's, it's the final form of the text, right? It's, it's, the, mm-hmm. it's the form that comes to us. And it raises the question, we have Psalms that are written by Moses. So is that the original form of the Psalm? Or is it the role that that psalm plays within this broader canonical whole of these 150 psalms or so? Right. And that's a really important hermeneutical question. And I'm I I feel as if at least in evangelical scholarship, there's a there's a real push toward a more canonical reading. Mm-hmm. And I'm one who's kind of hesitant. <laughs> I, I don't I don't I don't I don't disavow it, but I'm just a little hesitant about canonical claims. I, as with also the 12 minor prophets, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting line of, of interpretation, but I don't just personally, I feel kind of like, eh, I, I, it's saying, it feels like it's saying more than I'm willing to say authoritatively, but it's a really important question that you're raising. Yeah, I know that uh, 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 our beloved Dr. Keen here has a question, but just maybe one uh, commercial I'm going to throw in here. I, I do have a critique of this sort of, I, I guess, hyper canonical view of the Psalms in my classes on uh, on the poets class here. So if anyone's interested, you can come and take the class and and, 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 and hear my critique of why I'm I'm I'm, I'm reluctant. Well, uh, and all of these issues question, we're skimming so. across the top, and that would be a great way to dive in more deeply yeah. into this topic. If y'all are done with the commercial break, um, <laughs> back to our show the, already in progress. <laughs> the New Testament uh, guys can come in to your rescue because one of the Well, I wonder if one of the, I'm I'm thinking about this kind of idea of there being a macro structure, and there's at least two New Testament books where I think that there's kind of these multiple structures operative. So James comes to mind, right, as a book where you've got these clear literary ties, you know, this, you you rarely, there's these very elegant transitions from one section to the next in James. And, and so it's very clearly crafted as a cohesive book. And yet each of those sections are kind of detachable at some level. And so you've got both a, a kind of superstructure going on, like these Lego bricks have been built into something, but then each paragraph, each section has its own integrity. I wonder if that could, could help here as kind of like a, um, maybe there is this macro structure, but that wouldn't, that wouldn't take away from the your ability to read each psalm independently in, in some in some well I guess that's the passion that I have the uh, the attempt to see canonical order oftentimes is done at at the expense of the individual psalm in other words to see its connection with the following psalm you have got to sacrifice so much of what an individual psalm has to offer and it just seems to me that's just way too high a price to pay to see something that is uh dubious kind of uh and and uncertain uh and but i do think we do have kind of large sections of the psalms as well that has a sort of unit uh that may 
prove some value. Like, for example, the Psalms of Ascent. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a clear collection that can be mm -hmm. clearly seen as a beginning and end that has a unifying theme. Um, the uh, the Asaph Psalms, to a certain degree, you could see a similar type of gather regathering. Re yeah. Uh, the themes of the eschatological war, things like that within these Asaph Psalms. Um, uh, there's a couple others that uh, that's not coming to me that you can actually see as well. The Hallelujah Psalms at the end, you can see a, a collection there. There is a a you know if you take instead of looking at microscopically individual psalms, right? Which again, it just seems to me um, you've got to do so many hurdles and. And you've got to jump through so many hoops to make it fit, and you're changing your your categories to make them fit. It just seems if you're going to do that, then you can make anything fit with anything. Right. And and what value is that at the end of the day? You mean trying to make it fit into the canonical yeah, theory that you yeah. have? Yeah, yeah. So if and that's one the problem, right? Yeah. It starts to just get very impressionistic and it, kind of it it yeah. it takes a it, it it has no discipline. That's yeah. a problem with it. it. It's just sort of well, again it. The, the wish is father to the thought. Is that is that phrase that I what think of? When you like, want it yeah. to make sense, so you make it make sense. The there is a value if you kind of take a you know a step back and you look at the Psalms kind of at a broad uh, level. You do generally see, and this is sort of the view of people like Klaus Westermann uh, and some of the um, uh, early higher critical uh, or historical critical uh, 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 scholars who I think definitely are seeing something when they see the. At a large level, you see this a movement of lament psalms, sort of in the earlier half of the Book of Psalms, that ends with the Hallelujah Psalms at the end. So you have this movement of lament to praise. Mm -hmm. uh, that does seem to me very uh, yeah. strategic, at least at a you know at a broad level. That that seems very historical redemptive. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's prophetic, perhaps is one reason why uh, Jesus refers to the Psalms. Uh, in Luke 24, as being a, uh, a, a, it being about him in his suffering, the glory, kind of mm -hmm. using the historical redemptive themes yeah. of lament uh, to uh, to praise. So that seems to me worthwhile. That seems to produce something. Uh, so I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, I guess, right. and and say there is nothing there. But at the same time, uh, there is some uh, discipline. Um, uh, some controls that have to be put into place, I, I suspect, uh, for this to be fruitful. So, Peter, are you um, are you suggesting that instead of reading it as like a canonical 150 collection, just read it and read the Psalms in terms of clusters? Because at the end, they like so anyone could parachute into like let's say Psalm 57, and whereas you can't do that in most other books in the Bible, um, are you saying that? That's perfectly fine with the Psalms. I think it depends on the Psalm. Uh, if it's in a collection of Psalms, then I think we have to be conscious of it. But I don't know if that is something that we'll find in individual in every Psalm. Each Psalm to me uh, has its own message, its own um, expression, its own contribution. And if we apply the principles of poetry that we discussed last time on any given Psalm, uh, to me, that yields a lot more uh, uh, thematic uh, messages. It it uh, reinforces benefit to God's people, uh, and there's more to gain if we look at each psalm using those poetic techniques than the canonical method, which to me uh, value it mm -hmm. doesn't seem to garner much uh, in in terms of. Uh, 
uh, in terms of the product. What do we gain from this type of exercise? Uh, I'm not sure what we gain, uh, but in terms of just daily benefit for God's people, to take a psalm and to kind of read it line by line and to see what it's saying, you know, in terms of an overall message, there's a lot to gain yeah. uh, from that. Yeah. So. Is there a parallel there maybe to like the modern record album where each song is a, a bit independent um, and yet the um, the album is crafted, it's put together. Well, I guess maybe back in the day they were crafted and yeah. put together. I can think of albums that, you know, that, that had that kind of coherence to them. Um, so you listen to the whole thing and it has a, a certain value, but each individual song is, you know, radio worthy i think that's so that's a great analogy but i yeah but i think so i i mean that's sort of how i work through the psalms when uh when you go through them you you uh you know it, it, the idea of preaching through 150 psalms in one sitting is overwhelming it's probably not the best <laughs> yeah thing to do but maybe to take a season where you're going to work through a collection and yeah. and then take a break and then do something else and then come back to it you know at a time when you think uh pastorally is wise um, but to treat it as just a collection or just as an individual psalm on its own, uh, to me, is more benefit to doing that. And and for that reason, I'm kind of backtrack uh, regressing here. The current um, scholarship in psalm studies is this question of the canon, uh, the order of the psalms. And again, as I mentioned, I don't know about this, but... You know, the previous scholarship was more form criticism, uh, genres, you know, laments, praise, wisdom. And and that to me still is a benefit <laughs> and something that we uh, we definitely could and should still do. So it's it's a bit outdated what I'm suggesting, but I, I just find that still much more helpful and, and beneficial. So, Peter, is there a resource that you found like most helpful for identifying at least the clusters? Uh, I think any intro uh, in Psalms will identify those large sections. At least that's that the Psalms themselves have identified themselves in terms of the headings. Um, uh, uh, and if you go through them, I, th I think that you'll find that those are pretty helpful. Uh, you know, there are book intro books on the Book of Psalms. Mark Futado, our teacher, has a has a book of Psalm, mm -hmm. has a book on interpreting the Psalms where he will go through some of the subsections that he sees and mm. and what puts them together and uh so any of those i think are are really great there's a great resource by i i find it very useful um by bernard, bernard anderson, anderson yeah. out of the shadows you knew what i was gonna say before i even said it he's not coming out of a, an evangelical background and so I say read it with a grain of salt that way. But I think in terms of bringing together the different genre, if we're talking about genre clusters, the different genre of, of the Psalms, I think that resource is very accessible. And he does one of those things that scholars often don't do. He just kind of lists things out. You can use it almost like a phone book or a mm, reference. It's so but, and it's a very thin paperback. It's old. It goes way back. Like I said, again, he's, he doesn't have all the same commitments about do the doctrine of Scripture. But I think it's a very useful resource in that way okay one last question then about the shape of the psalter um you have this division of the psalter into five books um evenly sized um i don't know of a scholar who thinks that that would be all the way back, of course, it's not back to the original because, as we said, these are these are multiple different psalms coming together. I don't think David said, "Now I'm going to write the second 
psalm for the book, okay, or something like that. But what's probably going on here is some kind of later canonical ordering. Of course, that question that's still out there is, should we think of that as an inspired ordering? Is that some inspired prophet or scribe putting them together in this way? Can we know who that is? I don't think we need to delve into that because we, we kind of talked about that with the canonical question. But it does raise this other question of how, how should we think about the books? They're in our modern translations. Most modern translations leave them in there, those book divisions. Um, there's a lot of theories from the ancient world about what they are. Do you have any thoughts on that, Dr. Lee? Uh, I do. I actually like the uh, fivefold division. It, it's old. Uh, it, it's interesting. We do have um, other collection of psalms in the ancient world uh, that are, in, you know, uh, it, it's it, what's interesting is that Psalms 1 through 89 are all the same order. It's Psalms 90 to the end that has different orders depending on what canonical collection we're looking at mm. uh uh christian uh text uh different jewish canon orders mm. uh and and that's sort of interesting it, there seems to be a stability one through 89 but not 90 on they they scatter at that point but the but the five book order uh and the five book structure of the book of psalms is constant throughout no matter what uh uh canonical order or canonical old testament collection we're looking at that they all follow a five book structure that so that must be extremely old mm -hmm. uh, and where that came from i'm not altogether sure i'm almost definite it's post-exile but uh, very early in yeah. the restoration period there well and if they're a part of that process through which we get the superscriptions you know the right, the, the, right. the styles the hebrew style technical terms that are used or the who, who the psalm is for or what kind of instruments should be used it is interesting that by the time of the translation of the greek Psalter, which is sometime before Christ, mm -hmm. a lot of those technical terms are already lost right. to that Jewish audience who's translating it into Greek because they just transliterate right. the, the Hebrew words because they don't know what to do or, with them or either. Or sometimes so, they're wrong. So, yeah. So they're old enough right. that they have fallen out of at least the, the religious memory. Right. So the they don't know quite what to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this headings are old. The this five book structure is old. The five book structure, you know, when you think five books, you can't help but to think Moses, and that's generally what it's looked at. Is that this is sort of the 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 book of Psalms is being looked at. Uh, uh, you know, however we you know we had whatever Davidic Psalms or other Psalms that were out there that were put together in the order that we have it now, in the form that we have it now, in the post-exilic era, in a five book structure. Um, and uh, that five-book structure is just begging Moses. We're thinking this is the Pentateuch in poetry. It has that sort of prominence, that sort of authority, and that sort of uh, uh, value. Uh, what I find interesting is that if that's true, then in the post-exilic community, you are starting to find a, a, a kind of a restored mosaic kind of uh, prominence but this wouldn't be the only case that we find this in that post-exilic community. You find it, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah, you see sort of this uh, resurgence of Deuteronomy again in Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the, um, uh, the, even the book of Proverbs tends to have a strong Deuteronomic feel in terms of the Ten Commandments, uh, sort of the Ten Commandments in wisdom form. Yeah. Um, but Ten Commandments, we're thinking Moses. Even the book of Chronicles, uh, there is so much... Pentateuch themes in the book of Chronicles that's so rem uh, reminiscent of Moses. It's as if the 
you get this mosaic kind of resurgences here and there in the book of Psalms, this five book structure seems to be in that same kind of uh, lines of thinking. If that's true, then this post-exilic community, even though they're restored, uh, their restoration is really kind of a return back to the wilderness era in the days of Moses. Mm -hmm. They haven't really entered into this kingdom era, but yet here is a book that is so strongly messianic, uh, this idea that we are still waiting for the messianic king. Mm -hmm. uh, you get the sense, perhaps, that the book of Psalms is saying that we have not yet really been restored. We're, we're sort of back into wilderness here in the times when, uh, when Moses was here, and yet we are still waiting for this messianic king to to come. And, and I can't help but to think that maybe that's one reason why we have a, um, a five-book structure here that uh, the restoration is not really restoration in that post-exilic era. The restoration is just wilderness again. We, we've, In other words, since the days of Exodus, when Moses led us out into the wilderness, mm -hmm. we have never really entered into the land, not the real oh. land that the Lord has always promised we had a kind of land, mm -hmm. but that really didn't do us much good. We really need something better. And until that better comes, that greater stage, that sort mm -hmm. of eschatological stage of reality comes, we have really been in wilderness all along, uh, you know, and uh, the exile was wilderness. Even our, our pre-exilic kingdom stage, I mean, that really was just an, really another wilderness, if you really think about it. Mm -hmm. We have never really entered into the land. And, and this restoration here is still kind of, you know, we're still under that mosaic era there. We have not really been kingdom. As we talked about so. with First Peter recently, right. you know, the elect exiles. Um, I think that kind of raises the, the question of the purpose, the point, the function of Psalms. How, how, as a book, we've talked about that kind of from a, poetic form standpoint but as a book how does what is the point of psalms both for israel and then of course this is the most quoted book of the new of the old testament in the new testament so why why might that be why um why is it so important for the early christians thinking about jesus um and then the church i, mean, I think we still sing these psalms both in their present form and also in kind of a reworked poetic form in, in the modern period. Well, the, the Psalms are great. I mean, they are poems. I mean, it's kind of hard to... <laughs> you heard to, it here um... first. The Psalms are great. <laughs> you can't help but, to, you know, I mean, this, the Psalms are so fantastic and I can't, you know, they obviously perhaps had an appeal uh, for that reason alone. But, um, you know, as the Psalms were being received into the New Testament era, you know, they, they probably were being used in some form of a worship. I, I don't deny that. It's hard to say exactly. What we do have record of in the New Testament, though, is that the book of Psalms were being preached from, you know, these right. sort of didactic purposes, uh, uh, you know, sort of a kerygma. The, uh, in other words, um, this collection of songs began to form or began to be received as prophetic texts. In fact, when you read the New Testament, David as a psalm writer is being portrayed as a prophet. In fact, there's a lot of prophetic themes in the book of Acts and so forth, as mm -hmm. you know, yeah. that shows David as a psalm writer is not really writing a song. He is actually predicting the coming of his great, great son. The, the way that um, uh, perhaps one of the reasons why it's, it's so beloved is not just the fact that it's song that's, you know, it, you know, there's one, you could say, the, the, the Lord provides all of my needs, and that's great. 
Or you can say, the Lord is my shepherd. It's the same thing, but with a lot more, you know, poetry that's just describes the beauty of the Lord with a lot more fervor and imagery and, and power. Um, but if you see them as prophetic, where you're preaching from them, like from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, uh, then it provides a whole nother aspect of appreciation, of depth, of value, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and, and, and benefit. So somewhere in there, you know, we had a bunch of individual Psalms written by David and Solomon and a few from Moses and whomever that began to be collected into a collection of, of poems that were being used for temple worship. That's true. And then somewhere in there, these collection of songs began to be interpreted not just as poems, but as prophecy predicting the coming of the great messianic son. Now, okay. when and where that happened, I couldn't tell you exactly. Um, but well, I definitely think, by the church, you know, yeah. it was for sure that it was received it, that way. I mean, I think there's a there's a teleology to the Psalter that it is the end of God's redemptive work is this response of worship. So we're not learning about God just so that we can pass the test or something like that, but we're learning so that we can respond in the appropriate way, which is worship, right? Like Psalm 40 tells us, we have our own little ordo salutis there tucked away in the Psalter. I'm in the pit. I wait upon the Lord. He lifts me out. He puts me on firm ground. And for many Christians, we say, and that's, that's where salvation ends now that you're out of the pit. But it's not for the psalmist. What's yeah. the end is he puts a new song in my mouth. And so what do we have? We're learning here. What's the culmination of this redemptive history? It's this response in worship. It's, it, it reminds us that our theology is very relational and covenantal. And so when you think about it, I mean, to your point, Peter, I think it's a great point. Is what, What's the church doing? They're, they're reading they're revisiting redemptive history in light of the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, and they're developing. So what does this all mean? And we shouldn't be surprised that when you go back to the Old Testament, where a lot of the theological propositions are exposited as in the Psalter, is where most of it takes place. I think that's actually why systematic theology is quoted out of the Psalter more than any other Old Testament book too. Because all those things, it's beautiful, it's worship, but why is it so theologically rich? It's because our theology is covenantal and personal. It's, it's meant to be sung, right? Not just Amen. recited. I have said that, you know, the book of Psalms captures our seminary's vision, perhaps better than any biblical book, a mind for truth uh, with a heart for God. I mean, you see that just captured here in the book of yeah. Psalms. Did I get that order right? Yeah, you got mind that. You got, that's mm-hmm. good. That's good. You're, you're that's a good, good party, man. I would say one one last thing. This isn't merely an Old Testament idea, of course. I, when I read Paul writing to Timothy about protecting the thing with which we have been entrusted, protecting it from false teaching, when Paul says, why do all this? Why? Because it leads to love. Mm-hmm. It's the love of the Lord. Again, reminding us the Psalter is the proper expression of our theology. It goes to the timelessness of the Psalter, too, yeah. that, uh, that you know, we can... S- there, there's this. I like your your language there of the teleology or the eschatology of of the Psalter. There's this longing. There's this waiting, and that longing and waiting from a from the standpoint of a kind of Old Testament uh, standpoint is prophetic in a way. God will redeem. He will mm-hmm. deliver, um, and then we see that happen definitively in the coming of Christ. And so the Psalter becomes a way of expressing. 
who Christ is and what he has accomplished and how he's fulfilled the Psalms. And then the Psalms get reused by the Christians as this expression of the second coming of Christ, of Christ that will he will return. And so that, that come thou long expected Jesus idea has a twofold aspect to it, a, a longing from the Old Testament, a presentness now in this new song that we sing. And yet at the same time, we can sing the same old song in anticipation of yeah. the coming of Christ to bring all things new. Yeah. Amen. So if the Psalms are messianic, Peter, to your earlier argument, how do we sing them? I mean, Dr. Keene just kind of gave us the answer there, but how do we sing the Psalms then? Or let me, let me put it to you, Dr. Keene, as a New Testament professor, no, who's, who's, acquainted, who's acquainted with the Messiah. How, <laughs> if these are the songs of Jesus, then what are they for us? Is this just how we learn about Jesus? I, you know, I, they are how we learn about Jesus, but it one of the things that the Psalms do is they tie us to that expectation, that Old Testament mindset. It, it's, And so the power of song has that power to excite both the memory and hope and faith, you know, simultaneously. I, I love that. I mean, it's my favorite Advent hymn is Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, and it's my favorite Ad, Advent hymn because it's got a great tune to it. It's um, it's fitting of the moment, and but then hermeneutically, it's just that beautiful yeah. wedding of history and memory and longing and experience, and then prophecy and hope and testimony of what God will do. Uh, so, I approaching the Psalms as Christian scripture, we might say, or as Christian song, is uniquely fit for the hermeneutical task. We get to see and experience and live out the hope of Israel. And yet with this New Testament fulfillment that the son of man, the, the, the one longed for has come, the son of David has appeared and has established his throne. I think Tommy's point is great. I think it's beautiful. And I think there's a lot of value to that there. Uh, I guess one thought I have had about you know what this means for us is to see this truthfully just in union with Christ. Yeah. You know, the voice, you know, the question of how many of the Psalms are messianic is not a narrow wooden question. And we just take the ones that are quoted by the New Testament as being fulfilled in Christ, and that's it. Now you're stuck with what? 13, 14 Psalms and and that's it. That just seems to me so narrow right. uh, to the point of being unhelpful. Um, if if there is a prophetic theme here that's true and that David is speaking prophetically, at least the gift of prophecy, uh, then you know the answer to the question of which of the Psalms are messianic is is easy. They are all messianic. Um, yeah. And that grand schematic, uh, that movement of lament to praise, you see that mirrored in the life of Christ as suffering the glory. Um, uh, but I also see that as a life pattern of the church, of, of, of us as believers. Uh, you know, this is a life in a fallen, corrupted world of suffering for us that leads to glory. In that sense, in union with Christ, the psalm, the, the first person voice of the psalmist is not just the, the voice and perspective of Jesus. It is our perspective in union with Christ. The, the union discussion in the, you know, has been, I don't know how much of this is still ongoing, truth be told, um, 
of you know uh, in terms of soteric union and the question of the order of the of the uh, divine blessings, or are they aspects or uh, of the one union? Of, you know that whole dialogue that goes on um, is 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 great, and I think there's a lot of benefit to that. But there is a I don't know what you call it. I guess a historical redemptive union with Christ, or a biblical theological mm -hmm. union with Christ, that we speak to here and there, kind of randomly. You know, uh, we talk about the priesthood of all believers, uh, the uh, you know the Adam themes. You know, but but it's so not well ordered. But yet these are biblical theological themes of order. We're not talking about being united to Christ in justification, resurrection, which is great. But that's not what's going on here. So there does seem to be an aspect of union with Christ discussion from a biblical theological perspective that is definitely worthwhile, that needs to be done, that no one is doing. And, and someone needs to just sit down and think through this exactly. And what are we dealing with here from a historical redemptive standpoint or even a literary critical standpoint? Because that's what we're dealing with here yeah. with the Psalms. The Psalms are the voice of, a, of an ancient poet, whoever they may have been, in their historical setting, and that's valuable. But prophetically, the Psalms are the first-person perspective of Christ. He is the voice and the singer of the Psalms. He's the inspired singer. He yeah. is the inspired I, singer. The way you said that, yes. I just clicked it away. I thought, yeah, he's he, Jesus sings them. Not just that he's the perfect embodiment of the Godhead, to whom the songs are being sung, but he is also the inspired the singer, singer of the psalm. He is the yeah. my God, and not merely the enthronement psalms, or just the yeah, you know, just Psalm one ten. All of them, and and from a just one of the things that we want to do from a New Testament perspective, from a Christian perspective, is see the the heritage that we have in Israel, and this is a great way of doing that. This mm -hmm. is a great way of 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 maintaining that New Testament mentality of I'm not. This is not some new the new song I sing is not a new religion. It is, it is joining with the choirs of Israel as we proclaim yeah. the singer of the song, Jesus, our Messiah, the Son of Man. Yeah. But, you know, and again, just to kind of push it there, you know, it is, it's our song. This is our voice. Yeah. In Christ, we sing it songs, in Christo, right? In Christo. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. in Christo, the voice of the psalmist is our voice. We are the my God and the my God who has forsaken me. You know, that's not just the voice of Christ. That is the voice of his church in union with Christ. Mm -hmm. um, and there is our, our strength. There is our joy. It is, it is that communion bond with Christ in his suffering as well as in his glory. And so... And that's a great place to end uh, this discussions of the Psalms that we, we have so much more to say uh, and to talk about on this topic, as with all, with all these books that we're dealing with. But this has been, for me, a very fruitful conversation. Great did not get to weigh in on any discussion of infralapsarian versus superlapsarianism, but we'll look forward to that in future episodes. <laughs> we should okay. do Romans or something. <laughs> we should do a book like Romans sometime. <laughs> Um, okay, with that said, it's been great being with you all this week. Great having this conversation. Thanks to everyone for listening. Until next time, take care.
They're all real. That's what you guys can correct you're me. The you're the right. systematician, man. You should know better. Anyway, we should talk about the Psalms. We've got a hard stop. And Welcome to the Faculty minutes. Podcast. <laughs> Go ahead. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast, brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders in the ministry of the gospel. I'm sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> I should, I'm sorry. That's great. I started to feel like I was like so radio or something. Not in not in skill, but in tonality. All right, I'll start again. Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed. Is that too loud? 